This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master and myself, Jason Kelly, live from the Milken Institute Global Conference in Los Angeles. Joined now by Howard Marks, a former Angelino, now more of a New Yorker, I think. Good to have you. Uh, New Yorker again. New Yorker again. There you go. <laughs> Full circle. Get all the way back. Um, that's right. You're a native, native New Yorker. Uh, great to see you. Thanks so much uh, for joining us. You are well known in the world as someone who knows just about everything about credit and distress. Is there any distress in the world right now? There is distress mostly outside the U.S. Well, there's some in the U.S. Uh, retail is in distress. Some energy is in distress with low energy prices. Yeah. Uh, outside the U.S., it's a more widespread, less shotgun. Um, you know, there are some NPLs in, in uh, European banks. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we, we buy some of those. And there's a big pileup, of course, of NPLs in China. Yeah. Um, and uh, and we're, uh, we're looking at those. You are looking at them, but not buying yet? No, we, or investing we, we're, we're buying. We have uh, close to four years of experience doing it. We, we concluded four years ago that it was very important to start building experience. You know, you can't go into a market when it becomes propitious without some background. So... Uh, clearly, you have to build the experience in advance. How do you see China, especially with the backdrop of, I feel like, the tensions between the United States and China? Certainly not new. We've seen them through several administrations. But how do you view that, that political lens versus the investment lens? Well, it's, it's uh, not easy. Um, but, you know, the way I think of it, Carol, is that uh, Europe and uh, Japan are economic senior citizens. Mm-hmm. The U.S. is a mature adult, and China's an adolescent. Mm. And if you've ever had an adolescent in your house... (laughs) I have one now. (laughs) And I know Jason has one. Then you know that there are... It's tempestuous, ups and downs, um, chaotic. But you also know that the adolescent's best decades are ahead. Right. And, uh, you know, over the next 20 years, which is going to grow faster, China or the U.S.? Simple question, in my opinion. China will have rapid growth. Um, once in a while, there will be, you'll have some bad days. You might even have some bad years. Right. Once in a while, uh, there may be issues over uh, macro factors. But I think that, uh, you know, one of the largest economies in the world, uh, you can't ignore it. And so do you invest differently there going forward in a more meaningful way, especially given now the place where you're going to have Oak Tree housed within uh, Brookfield? Uh, you guys are combining operations there. What is the opportunity? How big does the opportunity get in China? The numbers are very big. Yeah. Everything in China is really big <laughs> in terms of numbers. Uh, we have been moving in cautiously. We will continue to do so. But we are amping up at this time. I feel like there is such, Howard, animosity 
Uh, certainly, I think there's a U.S. perspective of thinking China's the enemy, uh, and they're certainly got their long-term, you know, planning in terms of industries and how they want to be much more sophisticated, whether it's technology and AI and so on and so forth. And we look at that as a bad thing, and we want to stop them from doing that. How do we get a better understanding of what's going on from China? You've, I'm assuming been there. You've talked to various companies and investors. What what are we missing and not understanding? Maybe is there such animosity? Well, I've never felt any animosity. I've been going there for about ten years or so, and uh, more, I guess. Is it competitive though? Does China look at the U.S. as competitive and vice versa? Certainly, on a geopolitical stage,、uh, and w- within specific industries, I think、um, that's the nature of business.、Uh, you know,、uh, everybody、uh, competes; it brings out the best of us. And uh, uh, you know, it's really interesting to. Be in China and look at China and think about how they integrate a essentially controlled economy、yeah. with free enterprise,、right. which they have a lot of. And how do the two coexist?、Um, but、uh, my latest memo talked about uh, some uh, reforms that took place in China、uh, 40 years ago,、uh, and it, it it created much more、uh, emphasis on rewards and incentives. Um, and uh, uh, I think that uh, I think that uh, China is highly incentivized to work toward those、right. rewards, even if not the whole economy is characterized by free enterprise. I want to ask you about the, this notion that's out there that maybe the the markets are in what people are terming sort of a melt up. You know that we're just sort of going and going and going along because there's nothing stopping it, and valuations are getting out of control. What do you make of that argument? I've been in this business 50 years, Jason. I've heard it several times in the past.、Um, you know,、uh, I think that the,、uh, the the best way to think about it is by understanding what I call the three stages of a bull market. The first stage, when only a few far-sighted people understand that there could be improvement. The second stage, when most people see that there is improvement, and the third stage, when everybody and his brother thinks things will get better forever. Right. If you buy in the first stage, you pay bargain prices, and and you tend to make a lot of money. If you buy in the last stage, it's much more tricky. I think that when I hear the,、uh, stories about perpetual prosperity and trees growing to the sky, I tend to think we're in the last stage. Right. What's the biggest single worry? Thirty seconds left that you have about the U.S. economy for the balance of this year. It's not easy because everybody says to me, "I know it can't go on forever, but I can't see anything that would make it stop."、Yeah. And it's often hard to foresee the thing that's going to make it stop. Think back to the global financial crisis. You could have asked a hundred people. Virtually all would have omitted subprime mortgages. Right. And yet, that was the cause. So, we may not see the cause. We don't have to see the cause to know that we're in a prolonged recovery, a prolonged bull market. Nothing's cheap. These things alone, in my opinion, suffice to、uh, justify a slightly cautious approach. We're going to leave it there, Howard Marks. Always great to catch up with you, Oak Tree Capital co-founder, Seer of Seers. Always you, good、Jason. to talk、Thank、to you. All right. Well, I just got a thumbs up from a guy、it. who's here. He loves LA. 
Mayor Garcetti, great to see you. Thank you. Great to be back with you. Welcome uh, to L.A. Love chatting with you as always. And we're here in Los Angeles. It's a beautiful day. And you've got a big announcement, a Green New Deal. We talk about it on a national level. Yeah. You've got a plan for L.A. Tell us about it. Well, my simple message for folks in Washington is while you're figuring it out and looking across the aisle, don't worry about looking across the aisle. Look across the country. And here in L.A., actually four and a half years ago, we launched a plan that was about the environment, the economy, and equity. And now people have talked about a Green New Deal, so we're updating it, making stretch goals, huge carbon-neutral cities, carbon-neutral buildings, uh, trash-free cities, 100% recycling of our water, and a zero-carbon electric city grid. That now is time, and L.A., I think, can be the place while creating jobs. So it's economy and environment together. All right, so how do you do it? Like, what's the first, what's the first step, and, and how soon do people really start to see results from this? Well, we already held ourselves accountable a few years ago. So we, we reduced our carbon emissions in 2016 by 11%. I'd be challenged to find a city almost anywhere in the developed world that did that. And our unemployment went down 14% that year. So it's conscious strategies for jobs. So looking for those green sector, energy jobs, solar installation, water technologies, and at the same time, going straight to the things that I own as a mayor that we collectively own, right. and we run the largest municipal utility in the country, and we're transferring that not just off of coal, but now off of carbon itself. And then, of course, our transportation system and our buildings. Those three things, electricity, transportation, and buildings, account for about 80% of all of our emissions. So what pushback uh, are you getting? Because Green New Deal on a national level has uh, drawn some... Uh Maybe eye-rolling, maybe yes. some criticism, maybe some skepticism uh, at the very least. What are you encountering? At the local level, we don't really find that. And we want to put this out not just for L.A., but really as a green print for all cities in the country and around the world. I, I chair Climate Mayors, which is 422 mayors, bipartisan group around the country. And I don't think we get caught up in those conversations because while people are talking about universal incomes and things like that, we know in L.A. we created 35,000 green jobs. That's more than the country lost in coal jobs. Mm -hmm. So we know that we can create sectors in any city around this. Um, and that kind of answers that middle class question of how do we have a place in the economy for our citizens in the future, right. it's by embracing this stuff aggressively. Well, let's talk about that very topic because we think about it a lot in, in New York, certainly all over the country, affordability just of, of the big cities. Got a lot of yes. people who want to come to a, a place like L.A. We, you see it uh, every day. I see it, you know, flying in and, and driving through uh, town yesterday. How do you ensure yeah. that this is a place where people can actually make a good living, and live. Well, you have to find what those jobs are. So, for instance, I know New York's struggling with keeping up the subway and expanding it. Yeah. We passed a measure that uh, will never sunset to build 15 new rapid transit lines, and we make sure those jobs go here locally. That's 787,000 jobs you can't export. They're middle class, and you can keep them for an entire career, your lifetime. So I think it's thinking intelligently about these things, not just buying a little bit of solar power on the marketplace or uh, recycling a little bit more, yeah. but really building the economy around that, and that's what we're doing here in L.A. And how do you fit it into the state's goals? You've got a, a new governor, right. um, guy you know, you know Gavin pretty Newsom's well. Doing a great job. Um, you know, he's had a job similar to you, a little, a little bit further upstate, <laughs> that other uh, city, smaller, what's it called? smaller town. <laughs> um, but you know, how do you? What do you need from the state in order to get right. this going and to ensure its success? Well, I think cities often inspire the state policies. So we said we were going to be um, 100 percent renewable, and then the state passed that, so that 2045 is now the goal for all of California. 
uh, when we started becoming a solar city. Now we're number one solar city in America. The state started to help subsidize that, electric cars uh, and electrifying our transportation system. So usually cities are the laboratories. States are then the folks that can give it sort of volume. But a city as big as L.A. is essentially the size of a state. And so we hope to not just inspire California, but the rest of the country, too. And... What about traffic? Can we just talk about traffic <laughs> it's, for a it's, second? It's, it's flowing right now. You <laughs> yeah, have the LA traffic report, right. but it yeah. happens to be midday. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, three things. One is technology. Yeah. We have, even in peak traffic in LA, 92% of our streets don't have a car on them. Wow. So as we have autonomous vehicles or interconnected vehicles, we can much better use that space without having to double-deck freeways at billions of dollars and decades long. Second is the public transportation system that I told you we're building out. Yeah. And third is going to be building better communities. L.A. in the past, you didn't put the housing next to the jobs. You didn't put the retail near the housing. You didn't you know, go out and worry about hitting five neighborhoods in one afternoon. New York, you don't look at crossing three boroughs just yeah. to go see a friend every day. So it's really about better zoning and planning. And we're completely redoing the city, um, especially around our transit corridors, to be more dense and to put those jobs, those health care needs, everything all close to where you live. And when you think about jobs and industries, I mean, obviously, you know, we're sitting here, you know, in the in the Beverly Hilton. There's a Hollywood vibe. You go everywhere in the yep. hallways and Marilyn Monroe, Audrey Hepburn pictures. Is she here? And things like uh, that. Pictures. Not, just a picture. <laughs> um, but how do you think about sort of a diversified, a fully diversified uh, economy? And that's something that your neighbor uh, up the north really uh, struggles with, with, with technology and income inequality. How do you ensure that the right jobs and the right industry Industries are still coming to LA. Well, I just came from one of our community colleges, Trade Tech. Um, told the story of my grandfather coming back from war and, and learning how to become a barber and open up his own small business. LA is the small business capital, and so what we've done is we've tried to find all those different uh, sectors—not just technology, but trade, because we're the trade capital. Green jobs that I mentioned, um, looking at biotech and other things, and we've made community college free here. So we've boosted by over 50% in one year the number of kids that go from our public schools into full-time community college. So that's the pathway to learn that trade, get a good job, do all the things that we need to, and figure out a way to move forward. And when you think about your own political ambitions, not running for president, yes. uh, you said, but are you excited about the, uh, just about 20 seconds, are you excited about the field as it stands right now in the I Democratic am. I think the more the merrier. Many of them are close friends, but I, I, I look forward to them kind of duking it out, because if they can't survive that, they won't survive duking it out with President Trump. And I think amazing ideas are coming forward. We're seeing new sides of people, and they're all coming to L.A., because California, remember, we start our early voting right. the same day that Iowa caucuses are. Great to catch up and always uh, love chatting with you. Uh, Mayor Eric Garcetti of Los Angeles, great to be in your town. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. And welcome to our Bloomberg Radio and Television audiences. I'm Jason Kelly here in L.A. at the Milky Global Conference. Bruce Flatt, Chairman and CEO of Brookfield, joining me. Bruce, always great to catch up. Jason, hi. What a scene this is. There's a few people around. Yeah. So what are you hearing? What's the most interesting thing you've heard since you've been here? You know, it's only been three, four hours so far. But uh, look, I think... It, the big question is where we are in the cycle. Right. And I'd say that's mostly on people's mind. And where are we in the cycle? Look, I w from most of our businesses globally, and in particular here in the United States, everything feels pretty good. And uh, so there's no signs in front of us that we're going to have a recession, but no one should forget that we're 10 years into an economic recovery, and at some point there will be a recession. 
And what do you make of this idea that, you know, maybe we're in the midst of sort of a melt up, you know, that people are just don't have any reasons to be negative. So they keep buying and valuations go up and they're, you know, trees are rolling to the sky. uh, So we buy real businesses. We don't uh, necessarily participate in the stock market. So I don't have a view on a melt up. What I'd say is that the real economy with real businesses is pretty constructive virtually everywhere in the world. In fact, some countries are still getting better, a few going backwards, but they're, they're pretty good. So speaking of real, let's talk about real estate. You guys obviously a very big player in that globally. Uh, starting in the U.S., what do you make of the, especially the commercial real estate business? Look, the commercial market, similar to what we just talked about in the economy, the commercial market is strong. Office um, vacancies, uh, occupancies, I think, are the highest they've ever been in most cities. Many cities globally are in the 1%, 2 3% range. And that's just from a big urbanization that's occurring globally. And that's, I don't think that's going to change. Right. It, may, you, it may ebb and flow, but I don't think it's going to change over the next 25 years. And so what does that sort of secular shift mean for an investor like you? Does it change where you invest, how you invest, what you build and where? Look, look for example, we've, had a, we've always had a big single-family business in the United States, building single-family homes in suburban markets. And many of the sites we're now approving as we're going into cities. Yeah. Part of our acquisition at GDP was we're using those sites to concentrate and build other uses, mixed-use, residential and other things, because cities are moving further in. People want to live in major groups of people. So speaking of acquisitions, we caught up earlier in our show with Howard Marks. You made an acquisition there as well, buying Oak Tree, agreeing to buy a majority of Oak Tree. What's next for for that deal? How do you go about sort of integrating? Yeah, so um, the good news is we did a partnership, not an acquisition, which which means that we don't have to integrate anything. In fact, Howard, Bruce, and their management team are the best in the business. That's why we did a partnership with them, which means that we don't have to do anything. In fact, they have to do all the hard work now. they got to run the place. Right. But uh, more said, uh, more uh, positively, I'd just say um, we're excited about having them as part of the franchise. There's many things they can do for us and we can do for them. But but the businesses are not yeah. going to be integrated. They're going to own 38% of it afterwards. We'll be 62, and we'll, we'll, they'll run the business for us. And why credit at this point? You know, like, why have why bring that platform on? Because it's something you haven't done before. Look, I, look, we've done it sparingly, yeah. but we don't have a big business. They have a $100 billion business. They're very good at what they do. Our clients increasingly want credit alongside the other products, and this was an efficient way to get it done with a best-in-class franchise. Yeah. Um, on top of that, at some point in time, the markets will turn, and we will put our money and other things behind their franchise, and I think we can become really best in class. Let's talk a little bit about a business you're deeply in, and that's infrastructure. There's a big meeting tomorrow in Washington. The president is convening some folks. Uh, He's going to talk to uh, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi, and Chuck Schumer, Senator Schumer, about infrastructure. It has been long awaited in the United States. I think anyone who's driven anywhere uh, in the United States or gone to any airport knows that there needs to be some investment. There hasn't been a lot as of yet. What do you think needs to happen and will happen when it comes to infrastructure in the United States, first off? Look, inevitably, all infrastructure is going to transfer into private hands. But um, until the point that governments are either stretched 
or, or um, uh, governments and the individuals that run them are pushed, um, it's easier not to do it yeah. because people yell at you when they have to pay for the toll on the road that they didn't have to pay for. Yeah. Um, so it's going to be slow in the OECD countries, but it's coming in eventually. And do you see a lot of opportunity outside the United States for infrastructure? And, and is there still an appetite for that investment? Yeah, look, there's a lot of... It, it, when I say this is it, the largest... The largest business in the world is real estate. The second largest is the infrastructure that it's all built on. So these are enormous businesses. And when I say it's slow, there's still incredible amounts of infrastructure that are being privatized around the world. In fact, much, much more outside of the United States because it wasn't natural to get it paid for. And governments don't have the money, and therefore they're going, I'll call it skipping the step of government owning it. They're going right to private infrastructure. And, uh, and that's occurring today and, and increasingly around the world. So when you look across your businesses, whether it's infrastructure or real estate or private equity, now credit uh, via the Oak Tree Partnership, uh, what worries you the most in, in 2019? Where are you seeing any warning signs? Look, there's no, um, we don't see big issues in the economy out there. Clearly, um, valuations are higher than they were 10 years ago, 7 years ago, 5 years ago, 3 years ago, a year ago in the stock markets. And interest rates um, look like they're going up, but they don't look like they're going up at the current time. Um, but those are the things out there that could disrupt the markets. When that happens, how it happens, um, that and political issues. But I'd say we, when we're investing into long businesses, you generally don't. As long as you pick good countries, you don't get too concerned about short-term governments. Last question for you. One of the political issues out there that I know is in one of your backyards or front yards uh, is Brexit uh, going on there in the UK. Maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. You've been pretty clear that the effect on your business has been de minimis so far. Still true? Yeah, look, I would say uh, most of our businesses in uh, in the UK today are doing well. I think longer term, the UK will still be a great place to invest. In the short term, there's no doubt this is disruptive and not helpful for business. But uh, at, like all countries, they will see it through. Bruce Flatt, Chairman CEO of Brookfield Asset Management. That All right, so the Puerto Rican feeling, you know, there's a guy who just wandered over to our set, Carol Master, an old friend of mine, Michael Tenenbaum. He used to be an Angelino, a uh, longtime Angelino. He was a New Yorker. He's a Southerner uh, by birth and constitution. Now he lives in Puerto Rico. Michael, great to be with you. I always love seeing you. Muy, um, muy bien. There you go. So tell us about Puerto Rico right now, because you literally weathered uh, the storm. You're an investor. You're a resident. What's going on down there right now? Well, I've been there three and a half years. I'm one of the old families now. <laughs> the, uh, actually, I went there because I thought I would take life a little easier and read and write, much like you. And uh, then I found that I just couldn't do that. Yeah. It was so exciting. They were going through dramatic change. So I started a small company, got a couple of smart people together, and we started building economic model of Puerto Rico. We started marking it to comparables, which we thought were like Florida and Hawaii and Jamaica and, and Costa Rica. And we could see enormous opportunities for growth there. 
and uh, we thought that that should inform public policy, and so we spoke out in that regard. But the uh, the populist wave is alive and well there, and uh, a lot of uh, politicians promising uh, milk and honey and uh, getting votes. And so we have a very high unemployment. We have a low participation rate, partly because of uh, public benefits. But the opportunities to to grow in several fields are just enormous. So but what the best part is I love living down there. It's beautiful, and the people are really nice. Well, yeah, I do think, unfortunately, the tragedy of the storms, the uh, hurricanes, it, terrible. And, you know, we certainly wish they had never happened, but it does give... Puerto Rico an opportunity to kind of recreate themselves from the ground up and do it better this time around. Are we going to miss that opportunity? You know, there are three aspects to what you say, which is very profound. First of all, the storm brought a lot of attention to Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. You know, it's too bad it was that sort of attention. Right. It would be nice if we had 10 Nobel winners or something and a, and a, uh, and a, a, right. and a football hero. But uh, the fact is that we showed up on lots of people's screens, especially opportunistic investors. And we've had a lot of folks come down and look at look at things. So that part has been good. The second part is that uh, the private and public funding, I, I want to say obligations, because they seem to be obligations, uh, total pretty close to our annual GNP of $70 billion. So even if it leaks in over five years, that's a hell of a tailwind. Right. Right? If it's spent well. But, you know, we see that also in the U.S. I mean, when... When we had the 2008 financial crisis in the U.S., and there was a huge push for public spending to try to build up confidence and mm-hmm. jobs, it, it, it was an opportunity that was wasted. It could have gone in infrastructure and education, but it didn't. And my hope is that the money here will be spent wisely. Uh, the, uh, the, the political environment down there is, is very volatile. There seems yeah. to be a new party every election cycle. And, uh, uh, so, Michael, is it the environment down there? Is it also a little bit of the environment here in the United States and in Washington? You really want me to answer that? I certainly do. <laughs> well, my feeling is that uh, the 24-hour for-profit news cycle has created a demand for the most dramatic comments that you can find. I guess mm-hmm. this is one. Mm-hmm. And... and Coupled with the immunity, legal immunity politicians have from slander and, and lying, that they actually are protected speech. Right. So if you have a combination of that, then who gets the airwaves, you know, other than this one, of course. And, and, and as a consequence, if you're an honest person, you want to be a public servant and you want to compete against that, you just prefer not to. Yeah. So my concern is in attracting leaders into politics anywhere in the world unless we can have some kind of compliance with facts and, and integrity. I know. I grew up in the world of journalism when facts actually meant there something. Uh, <laughs> well, they do with you, I know. Thank you. So I want to ask you uh, about the fact you've got a book coming out. It's called Risk Living on the Edge, out later this year. So we'll tease ahead to that a little bit. But it does put me in the mindset of, of wanting to ask you about risk right now in, in, in 2019. You had a long career Bear Stearns, and we could go all the way back to Georgia Tech, but we'll go Georgia Tech, Harvard Business School, Bear Stearns, starting your own shop out here uh, in Los Angeles, uh, looking at you know pretty high-octane uh, alternative uh, investments. What's the biggest risk in the market right now? Well, I, I, I say in the book, which I'm deeply appreciative of your mentioning, 
soon available in your nearby bookstall. But uh, uh, I think the biggest risk always has been uh, uh, analysis error, mm. judgment error. Uh, people can get the same facts and, and come to completely different conclusions. And you know, by based upon the big spread and investment outcomes, some people are good at applying judgment and working hard on analysis, and some people aren't. And I don't think that's ever changed. I was at, at some of these uh, meetings here this morning where people ask, what is the biggest risk ahead? What risk do you see? And I've been doing this, I guess the bad news is 50 years. That's also the good news. And, and, and the scripts don't change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the book, we talk about the largest percentage declines in the S&P 500 going back to the 20s. Every time a different reason was given, and every time they came back. So the fact is that the kinds of risks we're looking at today don't compare to the ones I saw in the 50s, which were nuclear war. I mean, you remember the Berlin blockade? Yeah. Well, I was pretty damn scared. I was the new uh, Army lieutenant, okay? You remember the Cuban Missile Crisis and how close that came? So the magnitudes of risk today, I don't think so bad. I, I, I never bought that China wanted to go in and wipe out the U.S. I mean, the fact is they're more scared of their billion-dollar subsistence farmers not getting uh, hope yeah. that, than they are of us. So I think there's still wonderful opportunities. The prices are high in most asset categories. Yeah. But, uh, but there's always something for industrious. There was just an article about Venezuela where people are buying eggs, yeah. you know, as a store of value. Right, right. It's like staggering. Uh, Michael, something you can eat your inventory. What there a pleasure. Go. Thank you so much. Uh, Michael Tenenbaum, co-founder of Tenenbaum Capital, uh, really giving us a nice overview in terms of what's going on in the world and certainly down in Puerto Rico. And the book out later this year, Risk Living on the Edge. Sharks just on the cover. the cover. It's <laughs> amazing. Love you, love you, I'm going to tweet it out. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Now live on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg TV is Catherine Keating. She's the CEO of BNY Wealth Management. So nice to have you here with us. Great to be here, Carol. It's such an event. People from yes, all different is. walks of life. Yes, it is. The wealth management business, um, I think I've heard you say it's going through a kind of a transformation, a transformational age. Talk to me a little bit about that. What's changing the most? So I guess first big picture, when I started my career a couple of decades ago, we never would have guessed that the retail market in this country would become larger than institutional. And yet that's what's happened over the last few years. So that's a major transformation. And it really means two things in wealth management. The first one is it means that we are really advising the first generation that's primarily responsible for their own retirement. And second of all, it means that we're investing for taxpayers. Because if you think of the institutional world being tax exempt, it's all about after-tax returns and wealth management. It's fascinating that you say that because we were thinking about, when we were thinking about our conversation, with you. We just came off tax season. Yes. How did that play out for a lot of your high net worth individuals this season? Well, this believe it or not, this season was like every tax season, which is our client, you know, our clients pay taxes, right? And we see it happen every April, and this right. was really no different. It was no different. So the policies, the tax overhaul didn't change them that much. Well, they, they certainly impacted different clients differently, but we, we saw the same pattern that we've always seen in April, which is a lot about close to pay taxes. It's interesting too when we think about the high net worth individuals. They are increasingly playing in the alternative asset world. They are. Tell us a little bit about what they, they want, what are their demands, what are they looking to get a piece of in this environment. They are. So we really work with two groups of clients in wealth management, sort of your core wealthy family, but then we also work with family offices that right. are very much like institutions. And when you think about the alternative space, 
that's changed a lot over the last two decades also. I mean, today there are more private equity-backed companies in the U.S. than there are public companies. And so the whole spectrum of private equity investing has changed. While 20 years ago it might have just been buyout and venture, today you have buyout, you have growth capital, you have venture, you have private equity, you even have a secondary market today in private equity. So there are a lot more choices. Our clients are generally comfortable with private markets because that's how they tended to become wealthy themselves, right? It's through their own private businesses. But they're cognizant of the cycle. They're cognizant of valuations, all the money that has been raised in private equity, a trillion seven the last two years, multiples that are now, you know, sort of 10 times, getting close to 11. So right. it's, it's a question of selectiveness. I am curious, too, is the U.S. still kind of a favorite destination for some of these ultra-high net worth individuals when it comes to investments, um, Catherine, or are they looking more overseas? What do they want? Where do they want to be? Yeah, so the answer is it depends, right? The U.S. is roughly half of the public capital markets, but our clients have liabilities that are denominated in dollars, right? And so you tend to see a home bias to the U.S. that has paid off very well over the last decade, as you know, and I think we'll continue to see a bit of a bias. There's not any moving away from that because of the valuations? Well, listen, our clients have always invested globally. Um, and so we have healthy allocations outside the U.S. into emerging markets. But, you, but again, when your liabilities are in dollars, you tend to have a little bit of an overweight to that. What about China specifically? And I wonder if you're seeing any kind of increased flows into the Chinese environment and Chinese investments. At well, this China, point. China is obviously the second largest economy right. in the world. It is increasingly important to capital markets as it's opening up to outsiders. So we will see a continuing flow into um, you know emerging markets, Asia Pacific, and China as those markets open up. You've had a little bit of time on the ground here, and I know probably meeting with some of your clients and some other investors. Yeah. How would you describe the move? You know, I think the mood is good. I think we're all here cognizant that on a historical basis, this would feel like we're late in the cycle, right? We're into the 11th year of this bull market in July, will be the longest expansion on record. And yet, you know, here we are in Los Angeles, and I look at the weather outside, and, you know, it kind of describes the mood and where I think a lot of us feel we are in the market cycle. It's not too cold. It's not too hot. It's not too sunny. It's not too cloudy. It's kind of remarkable. It's kind of remarkable. And we see companies that are being supported by earnings and economy, the economy being supported by consumers. And that's actually a very good place to be. So when you talk to some of the family offices that you work with, or some of the high net worth individuals, what are they worried about when they look at the investment environment? And I know they tend to be, Catherine, much longer term perspectives, right? So they'll, you know, park their money and leave it alone. But I am curious with some of the big macro issues, whether it's Fed policy, whether it's a global slowdown, what is it that they seem to bring up the most? Well, I think in the short term, they're focused on things that would signal an end to the cycle, right? What are the things that have ended, you know, bull markets caused recessions in the past? Economy overheating, Fed raising rates. We don't see that right now. Extended valuations. We don't see that right now. Are they a little high versus history? Yes, but extended? Uh, no. Commodity spikes. You know, oil is up pretty nicely this year, but we don't see a commodity spike either. So in the short term, they're worried about that. In the longer term, they're actually worried about more than investments because if I, if, as I said earlier, you know, they're really trying to plan for this generation and the next, their retirement and, um, you know, their children. And so they're worried about more than just investments. They're worried about spending. 
for example? Well, and just one last question. I'm just thinking about diversity of investments. Yes. Are they finding, are you finding more opportunities, whether it's women based investing, whether it's younger generation, is there some opportunities in these kind of changing demographics? So the demographics of the wealth management industry are changing, right? Right now, you know, you get wealthier the longer you live, and so two-thirds of the assets in the wealth management industry really belong to baby boomers and above, and yet two-thirds of the population is below, right? right? So we're going to be living this demographic shift. Women are incredibly important as clients. They always have been. Little known fact about BNY Mellon, we were founded by Alexander Hamilton, but our first client was his widow, Eliza, so we have been working uh, with women forever, and roughly half of our clients are women investors. Great stuff, and great to get some time with you, yes, Catherine. Thank, thank you, thank you. Carol. Really Just great. great. Catherine Keating of BNY, of course, Mellon Wealth Management. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Here at the Milken Institute Global Conference earlier today, I caught up with Steve Schwartzman, the chairman and the CEO of Blackstone. Here's what he had to say. We talked a couple weeks ago about earnings, and the big news that day was your conversion to a corporation, which sounds a little wonky, and yet has been a really big deal for the stock, not just yours, but the rest of the industry. Why? In terms of ours, it makes good sense, because there are probably two to three times the number of people who could buy our stock who haven't been able to because we've been using uh, K-1 statements. So by getting rid of those and converting to the normal 1099, if we can take advantage of that huge additional buying power, logic should say that if more people want to buy you, your stock will go up. And so what have people said to you in the aftermath? As I said, it's been a couple weeks. I mean, are you hearing from a different class of investors? Is your phone ringing from different people? Yes. People say, uh, thank goodness uh, you made that decision. Uh, We really want to own the stock. Can you come and see us? Uh, Our stock's up 13 percent in the last week and a half. Uh, since since I actually saw you, so you have a certain magic, uh, I should come on frequently. Anytime. Uh, and the other firms uh, have gone up uh, as right. well, not the same amount, obviously. But I, I think it's uh, the market looking and saying if that worked for Blackstone, uh, then probably the it's other firms for, yeah. will follow. And so as you look across the suite of products that you're offering to investors, whether it's real estate, credit, hedge funds, private equity, is there one that seems to be drawing a disproportionate or a little bit more attention from the big institutions right now? I'm asking you to choose among your children, I know. Well, that's a tough one. You know, we love all our children. Uh, and all the funds sell out. So the bottom line uh, is that we've had uh, huge demand, uh, p- partly um, uh, because we've done uh, so well for investors in every one of the classes. And the investors themselves have more money, if you will. Yeah. Uh, when, when markets go up, the size of their funds are bigger. Uh, so I, I, I think they're biasing things to experienced managers in a higher price environment uh, to, to, to basically protect capital uh, and do the right thing, uh, but also ride the cycle and be able to put money in at the right time. So when you think about that appetite for all of these funds, they're selling out. You've talked about getting to a trillion dollars in just a few years in assets under management. You're more than halfway there uh, at this point. How much do you worry about getting too big, that there's too much money that you have to put to work? Well, you always worry about things like that. And 
the nice thing is you can do something about it. This isn't mandated. Yeah. Uh, and you don't want money that you can't invest well. Uh, our business has gone from no assets to the largest in the world uh, in our asset class at $512 billion because we're careful. Uh, because we're prudent, because we understand we're playing a long game. Uh, and if we do poorly, uh, the only people who uh, remember that is everyone who gave us money. Uh, and so we only want them to have a good ride. Uh, and, and so it, it's up to us uh, not to have too much money in any strategy. What we tend to do, Jason, uh, is, is expand not by making one fund gargantuan, uh, we do it uh, by inventing other strategies or, or going into areas we haven't, but we think the investments are very good. So we're looking at uh, growth buyouts uh, mm -hmm. now or, or growth investing uh, uh, in equity. Uh, we think that's going to be very good. We're so in, you'll raise a separate fund for that this separate year? Separate fund for that. We're also... Uh, expanding in life sciences. Mm -hmm. uh, we think that that's a very interesting area with a very technical, uh, technically intensive uh, uh, group we, we purchased named Claris that does third stage trials, invests in that area and actually does the trials right. for large pharma. So, so what you do is you find something that, that isn't as correlated um, that in, in, the, in the growth growth uh, equity area, you know, it doesn't particularly use leverage, uh, where you're buying mature uh, companies in the in, in the, the tech area compared to the early stage things. And so, as you look around the world, one thing that's certainly on people's mind right now is Europe, uh, specifically Germany, specifically the, the banking sector there. What do you think is going to happen? You spent a lot of time in that part of the world. Deutsche Bank, front of mind. Where, where does this movie end? Well, the movie for Germany is a pretty good movie. It's been a good movie uh, since the 1950s. Uh, and, and they grow slowly. They're, they're, they're the largest uh, country in Europe. Uh, the, the, the financial sector in Germany has always been uh, uh, some, somewhat different than in other parts of the world. Uh, you know, they have a lot of uh, smaller regional banks, uh, and they've had not great luck uh, considering how good their economy is, that their banking sector uh, hasn't, hasn't performed as well. And uh, right now, uh, you know, Deutsche Bank has been in the spotlight for uh, the last few years in terms of uh, performance, and it's tough to manage a bank when everybody's looking at it and everybody's you know, uh, raising questions. Um, uh, Germany needs a, a national champion. Every, every European country believes that they, they need a significant uh, uh, credit extender uh, uh, and so do, you, so do you think it's a public solution or a private sector solution that ultimately helps save Deutsche Bank? I, 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 I'm not a Deutsche Bank expert. <laughs> I, I, I wish I were. Uh, I, I so you're not going in there? I, 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 we're not going in. It's yeah. hard to do due diligence right. on a bank. You are sitting on a panel today with C.H. Tung and Joe Tsai looking ahead to the future. I would imagine, given your expertise, their expertise, the focus is going to be on China. You've invested there. You've done a lot of philanthropy there. What's the thing people are missing about China? Well, China has stimulated its economy like they said they would. 
when the tariffs went in. Uh, I was there four weeks ago. Uh, the, the people at the central bank were telling me that worked very nicely. And, and now you're seeing the result of that, uh, which has surprised uh, some commentators that, that China's economy uh, looks pretty solid now uh, in the sixes. It didn't particularly surprise me. They have the ability uh, in China uh, to, to really force money uh, into their system uh, to, to, to create growth. And, and they're, they're doing it, and it's been successful. And are you putting more money uh, into China at this point as Blackstone? Well, we, we just bought a company there. I think, I think China is a harder place to invest uh, for outsiders. Yeah. Uh, and you, you, you always have to be uh, prudent and thoughtful when you invest. Uh, we're looking uh, in the real estate area as well. Uh, and it all depends, you know, what happens and what values are. Right? And that was my conversation earlier today here in Los Angeles with Steve Schwartzman, chairman, CEO, co-founder of Blackstone. Carol, he's riding high because, you know, they made that conversion to a C-Corp. We talked about it at the top of the interview. The stock is at an all-time high, and it's actually driving up uh, some of his competitors as well. So pretty bullish guy. Investors happy to hear it. And another person talking about China, and I feel like we've heard a little bit of a, yeah. a trend there. All right, you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week live from the Milken Global Conference, and this is Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.